Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, you're listening to the Never Strays Far podcast with me, Ned Bolting. And me, David Miller. This podcast is brought to you by your company, David, which is called... Chapter 3. Go and check it out at chapter3.com, that's C-H-P-T-3, and you'll learn all about it. I found it in 2015. Excellent. And by The Roadbook, which is the definitive cycling almanac, available for the duration of uh, Paris-Nice, which we'll be podcasting from every day, with a discount code that allows you free shipping on all UK orders. Just go to the website and enter NSF2020 when you check out. Plaisir to plaisir, nothing like plaisir. The weather's uh, horrible, it's horrible. What happened, David? Because someone uh, well, bicycles. It was classic Paradise in the sense that not much happened for quite a while, then all of a sudden everything started happening at once. There were crashes, there were echelons. Barville crashed, Bardet crashed, all blew apart, a bunch of riders went off the front. Richie Ports dropped. Richie Ports dropped, came back on, um, and they got dropped again, and then boom! Alaphilippe attacked with Bernard. Bernard switched 30 clays of kilometers ago. There was a group of about 10 riders being chased by a group of about 20 riders, yep. and as they were about to get caught, then that's when. Banotes went boom, and also Alaphilippe went with him, and they were gone. And then turns, and Schachmann came across, boom, four riders in the finish line, and Alaphilippe sat up, and Schachmann won. Yep, yep, Schachmann, it, it, uh, it was good. It was a really good race. It was classic Paris-Nice, in the sense that it was just horrible weather, and it was just got worse and worse, and it kept just breaking apart randomly in those last 60 kilometres, and then the final bit, it was... Just a, a classic tete-a-tete, wasn't it? It was like the two riders shooting two riders in the final 4Ks. There was a cobble climb. Didn't cobble climb. Of course there was a cobble climb. Yeah, the cobble yeah. climb. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, um, it was good. Actually, we just looked, watching the replay of the sprint. Now, and Dylan Toynes did look very strong. Uh, but, yeah, he was just outridden by Schachmann completely. Schachmann just sat on his wheel and popped around him with 75 metres to go and rolled it. But as you said, Alaphilippe just couldn't have it, just didn't have it in those final couple of kilometres. But considering you were telling me that he's been feeling very tired, yes, uh, that's a pretty good show today. For a man who was very tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. We should say welcome to Never Strays Far at this point, shouldn't we? And say we uh, this is our Paris Nice special. We're going to be podding every day. Yep. We're going to keep it, especially it's all the more important now, as this is about the only race going on. It's precious. It's like holding a little precious sort of bird in your hand, isn't it, that you've just taken out of a nest illegally. We're carrying such a a heavy burden here. We are. You just feel like, you know, I mean, there's no guarantee, is there, that, I mean, we've we've started, so presumably we'll finish, but there's no guarantee that this race is going to finish. No, it's true, because it gets close to Italy as well, doesn't it? Nice used to be Italian, didn't it? There you go. I spent two days down there as well, quite close to Lombardy, where the entire organisation of the Italian bike races, RCS, are now under quarantine. I was talking to one of them today, David. Yeah. I mean, they can't leave, he can't leave Lombardy. Mauro Venni cannot leave, he's got to organise the Giro, in theory. Yeah. Can't leave Lombardy at the moment. I suppose, in a way, it's a bit of a relief that they cancelled it, because it goes to show that it was inevitable that it was going to be cancelled, the race. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like there's no doubts that kind of you can't say, well, maybe we should have run it. We couldn't run it. Yeah. 
What, I mean, Milan San Remo specifically. <laughs> yeah, you, they would have all. I mean, you, you can't cross the border out without going to prison. So they would have had to arrest everybody in the peloton just it's, before the Tokino Pass or whatever it's called. So, what are they going to do the races again later in the year? Well, the theory is, yeah, I was sent a link by someone at RCS saying this is what they're suggesting. Um, mm. So it could all be based. You know, that, that, listen, we spoke about it, didn't we, on Never Strays Far? That chunk of racing that including Gran Piemonte and uh, Lombardia, etc., mm. Milano-Torino, you'd have to extend that. Whether or not they can actually realistically rerun Tirreno, I, I kind of doubt, mm. because that's a week-long stage race. But yeah. Strade Bianchi and Milan-San Remo, in theory, are, are rescuable for, for September. It's October. pretty cool that it's like a mystery classic now. You don't know when it's going to be. Philip Gilbert's just going to have to stay on form all the time. <laughs> Poor Philip Gilbert! <laughs> <laughs> oh man but yeah because it's at a summer Milan San Remo would be pretty cool to yeah. be fair yeah. but we'll see yeah but that was a brilliant start wasn't it because I must admit I mean I've, I've blogged about this a little bit on the Roadbook website that I've been very very feeling very gloomy about things it's been I mean all of us who work in the industry whether they're riders or you know team management talk about your sister as well mm. I think a bit later um for any of us, you know, anyone associated with the sport, it's been a huge period of uncertainty. Um, and I'm a little bit more hopeful than I was that at least the Tour de France, well, I think it's a very good sign that Paris Nice has somehow been blundered, bulldozed through yeah. and didn't succumb to the, the impulse to, to cancel it. I'm a little bit more, I've got, I've got an unfounded faith that somehow the Tour de France is going to happen. I'm a yeah. little bit, a lot more dubious about the Giro. But I think we will get bike racing when we're through the other side of this. Yeah, I think so. However long it's going to be. seems that, I mean, I quite like the the French Minister of Sport saying that, uh, apparently needs to say, because there's not many crowds on the road. It's, it's quite, which yeah. is true. Yeah. It's quite an empty race. Yeah. But I mean, it was it was pretty good today. And I think with Alaphilippe, you were pointing out as well, the last French rider was when? The one 97. Pound? 97, 23 years. So Alaphilippe could be coming along to save the day again. Just look at, we've just seen Peter Sagan, who is living up to your very daring claim that he will never win a bike race again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've always had this thing about predictions. There's no point in making the yeah. ones that are going to happen or the ordinary mm. predictions. But I'm all right. I'm all right with the Sagan prediction at the moment. I'm feeling fairly, I was just telling you, actually, I made the prediction based on absolutely no evidence other than a, a hunch. And then I actually went back and looked at his uh, race results over the last six years. And there is a definite, what do you call it, bell curve? Yeah. So, you know, he, mm. you were talking, actually, tell the listeners about the first time you saw Peter Sagan, because you were just oh, yeah. talking about that before we started commentating. So, because so, I've seen on reports and things today that it's the, the 10th anniversary of he, him appearing on the scene, let's say, and when he was first racing the World Tour. Was it Paris Nice in 2010? And I was there. Uh, I, was, uh, I was flying that year. And it was a classic Paris stage where we were coming to the finish and I'd attacked off the front with about four Ks to go and Joaquin Rodriguez had come with me. And it was a pretty solid move. And then we were gone and we had a pretty significant gap on the chasing group. Then all of a sudden, this flash of green came flying by us. I, I remember vividly it happening. And then just looking across at Joaquin Rodriguez, him looking at me, and we almost just shrugged. Like, <laughs> what's the point? How fast is he going? And we'd never heard of him. Nobody knew who he was. And he just kept stormed all the way to the finish and won that stage. And that was the first, uh, that was when Peter Sagan revealed himself as being this absolute weapon of a bike racer. And then he won, won another stage. I think he was, what, 20 years old, 19 or 20. And it was... Like uh, a liquid gas team. Yeah, exactly. Then, yeah. But it was, I, I can still, it, 
perfectly see it in my mind's eye, him just coming flying by and having, I, I don't think I'd ever seen anything like it in my career, right, of just in, uh, being able to do something as significantly different, better than the rest of us. And it, it was basically the beginning of the Peter Sagan era. Yeah, which I'm sure, you know, ridiculous predictions aside, is not over. It's just he needs to find a bit of form. Uh, you know, last year was a bit modest for him. Um, but hats off to his team today, because it, it, there, we could be forgiven for, with about 20 kilometres to go, 15 kilometres to go today. It looked like it was done. Mm. Um, and they just committed one ride. I think it's Felix Goldschartner. They yeah. only had a few to, to at their disposal um, to work for this victory that Schachmann just rode out. Um, and they got it bang on, actually. They they committed neither too much nor too little and just read it perfectly. Yeah, I mean, they did. And it was it was quite interesting to watch those last 30Ks because we, we didn't really understand why nobody was... Because there were a fair few teams... There were teams out there with EF who had a, a good chunk of riders in that group that was chasing uh, Benoit and Alaphilippe. But nobody was actually contributing properly to the chase apart from Ivan Garcia... Uh, from Barry McLaren, who was constantly on the front and did an amazing ride. And then you had uh, a Bora Hansgrohe rider, one, and then occasionally a lot of Sudal. And so I think actually it's easy to kind of just critique teams, but I have a feeling that everybody was just on the ropes. It looked extremely hard and the weather was getting worse and worse. And yeah, it it was actually almost a semi-classic sort of day. It wasn't that usual finish of a stage race where you expect it to wind up and the brakes be reeled in uh, everybody uh, whatever group they were in was on their hands and knees yeah <laughs> 14 minutes after the race has finished now we're just doing this podcast we're seeing a, a gruppetto come to the line of riders all swaddled up against the cold including max valscheid the sprinter from ntt a hell of a way to get the race uh, started i have to say david and you used a great word just before we started compl- um Commentating, you called it une course compliquée. Compliquée. That's such a French cycling word, isn't it? Compliqué. Très compliqué. Because it mixed up it mixed up the stage win and the GC thing today. Yeah. And when crosswinds come into play as well, that's always just wow, it's just fabulous, isn't it? Oh, it's okay. so that's uh, Oh yes. Yes, I've got to tell you about this. The climb today didn't get this into the telly bit, but uh, I'll save it for the podcast. Yeah. The climb today, the, the Côte de Neuf Le Chateau, um, has got a manor house at the top. Oh, is that the that's the plaisir we're looking at, isn't it? Chateau de Plaisir. Maybe, but it's still scrap that. Yeah. Well, they can't, it, see well it. they can't see no, it. True, exactly. I'm not commentating, am I? I'm just doing a podcast. <laughs> I can make up anything. Just lie. God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, the climb today had a manor house at the top uh, in the village of Nofle Chateau, and um, I did my usual little bit of diligence, Wikipedia, uh, to find out anything about this mm. chateau other than it was built in the 17th century or whatever, and. Um, They've got a really interesting story. It was rented by, in 1978, by the exiled Ayatollah Khomeini, <laughs> who um, lived there for a year before the Shah of Iran was eventually deposed in the what became known eventually as the Islamic Revolution, but the revolution in Iran. <laughs> and he then returned, having been exiled to Iraq and then France, um, to Tehran, where his government are... His, uh, his revolution is still in force hmm. many, many, many years later. Um, but he rented and lived in this manor house at the top of the categorised climb today. It's a very random place, isn't it? Really random. What was yeah. he doing there? I don't know. Bizarre. Very bizarre. Very bizarre. Um, yeah. So that's that. Anyway, yeah. so that's the bike race. We're going to be commentating every day. Yeah. The next couple of days look a bit 
the oof. well you never know with ponies that's the thing i mean it could be but if you've just got a we've got a hope as commentators that there's wind and this nasty weather continues i was getting a replay of that crash again um yeah. where warren buggy and roman Bardi went down they went down hard they were on the ground for quite a while and it they had the body language of riders who weren't going to get back up and they did eventually but Bargill, I think it's still going to be about another 20, 25 minutes till he finishes. Yeah. It's, if he, if, if he, he is, he is going to finish. We don't know that yet. Mm. Um, they're all bones, those two as well, aren't they? But yeah, mm. France looked like it had dumped its prospects on the ground there. And then Alaphilippe uh, kind, of, kind of rescued them. Single-handedly flying the French flag once more. I, mean, it's, it is, I mentioned this in the country. It's, it's a race that's kind of... It's just got his name stamped all over it, hasn't it? It does, yeah. And I mean, especially as the fact that the time trial is in his hometown. Yeah. And the way he can, we now know he he can climb. It, it's going to be a surprise if he's not battling for, for the overall win. But then again, so there is the ominous petite figure of Nairo Quintana, who's looking incredibly strong. He was ever present at the front in the crosswinds and everything today. Yeah. And he's he's like a different bike racer. I mean, we'll have plenty of time to talk to mm. this as the race as the race goes on, David. But about this, but I mean, Quintana's losses in the. 15 kilometer time trial to Julian Alaphilippe are not going to be unsubstantial. No, they're not. No, not, not. We now know how good he can time trial. So, yeah, it's going to, it's going to, yeah. uh, it's going to be a good race. I mean, Paranese is a weird one on the calendar because there is, it's probably one of the most love hate races that pro cyclists have. And there really isn't any middle ground. People either absolutely hate it. And, and you? it's almost like, I quite liked it actually. I loved it. Okay. So I liked the, I, I hated Tirreno Adriatico. That's why. Ah, so I loved Paris Nice because it meant I didn't have to go to Tirreno Adriatico. But I always liked racing at Paris Nice because it was so hard and and it was just kind of good fun because it was quite erratic and uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty cool. Race. The only problem was you stay in such shitty hotels. <laughs> it's like really bad, and it's like ones where you can't even open your suitcase. They're so small, and it's this miserable weather. So I mean, that was the reason that most people hated. It, I think was just it was <laughs> like, bleh. but yeah. I think it'll be good. You won. You won the prologue in two thousand seven. I did. Yeah. 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 I did. Sonia Duval. Sonia Duval. Yeah. Good on you. Shifted a few boilers. Were they the right boilers? Sorry. Air conditioning boilers. Air conditioning yeah. boilers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well done you. Classic. So um, t- t- Daniel Freeb is out there at the race. Mm-hmm. We're not. We're commentating remotely from London again. But um, I got some great tidbits from from Freebos, who's out there saying that because um, I wanted to check with him about whether the riders in the new protocol of not. Not, I mean, we're about to see the podium actually, and there's no dignitaries there, <laughs> no. pretty much. There's no hostesses, no handshaking, no human contact. The riders didn't hold press conferences, um, so there's all this going on. And I checked with Daniel, said, Are the riders still sharing bedrooms? And he goes, Yeah, of course they are. Oh, yeah, of course it's cycling. Of course cycling. Yeah, <laughs> can't, can't yeah, afford yeah. for them not to. No, it's just um, mad. But he came up with an absolutely brilliant one that he said, This is not for airing in the commentary. Yeah, so I'll just say in the podcast yeah. instead <clears throat> because. It was an interview that this certain writer, who I can't name, gave to another journalist. So Daniel just kind of like magpied it and told me. So yeah. I can't really tell you who the writer is, mm. except he rides for Direct Energy. Um, anyway, apparently he's come to the race uh, literally with a toolkit and a crowbar in his luggage. Because okay. if he gets locked in in quarantine, he's just going to break out. <laughs> but I can't tell you who it is. Legend. <laughs> As you would. Yeah. 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 Oh, cool. Um, now that's, that's the race. So we'll do one of these every single day, but, um, in the, uh, time honored fashion of never strays far, uh, we've got a little bit of other business to wrap up after a little bit of music. (laughs) 
and to any other business, Ned? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, as I've, as I've said, I've found, for a variety of reasons, I've found the last couple of weeks um, kind of working in the periphery of cycling quite quite testing. I think, you know, everyone's got all sorts of anxieties all the time in, in their lives and in the world at the moment. And, uh, um, and then out of the blue, something really, really serious happens. And it happened... Um, it was about a week ago when uh, the death was announced of Nico Portal uh, at the age of 40, um, who's the director sportif at Ineos. Um, a bit of news that uh, came like a bolt out of the blue. No one was expecting it. Not the slightest sign that it might have happened. And um, someone I had very, very peripheral contact with, uh, and uh, as did many, many people who work within cycling, but as the news sort of, as you tried to process the news and you filtered through it, um, it became quite ev- quite evident quite early on that this was someone who um was going to leave a serious hole in people's lives and um and david you uh, you know i'm sure that people were kind of expecting perhaps to hear your um obituary because that's what it would have been to nico mm. portal you've kept your counsel up until up until now but in your sister who's of course the chief executive of team Ineos, you have someone in your family uh, who was very kind of gravely touched by that news yeah, it was um, it was a really strange one, and uh, my sister called me up. For, well, she was one of the first people to find out, and I was in Copenhagen and meetings, and it was one of those calls where I just had to leave the room, and she was broken, heartbroken, and it was really hard because it's one of those things where I I think it was going to be shocking to me whatever happened. I didn't know Nico so well we were of the same generation we raced in the early 2000s on different teams but in that era uh, so we had fairly parallel careers and in pro cycling terms we crossed paths and said hello and occasional conversation but that was as far as it went really and i think having to uh, hear my sister and really feel it and it it really affected me. And I, I think for a few reasons. One, that she told me things about him that I didn't know. The fact that he was just such a wonderful man and she cared so much for him. And the fact that he was a father of two young children like me, similar ages. I mean, I'm similar age, Nico and our children are similar age. And I think that was really the thing that hit me so hard was imagining my children growing up without me and and oh, what those final moments must have been like for him and I didn't it didn't feel appropriate for me to say anything I didn't think it was my place and I wanted to internalize it and digest it and and really give him the the the, the thinking that I think he deserved I wanted to really appreciate who he was and 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 how lucky I am to to be here and hopefully have this time with my children. And so so it was a strange one because social media is such a wonderful thing and, and the outpouring of, of love and grief towards Nico was amazing. But Very genuine, wasn't it? And yeah. Let's face it, Sky Ineos have their haters and people who will pick on, pick on anything mm. <laughs> and will cross the line occasionally. Um, and uh, I saw no evidence of that. So there was, uh, there was no need Nothing. for it. There was no place for it and it didn't happen. And I think that that, that is a credit to, to Nico. Is, it's clear. And, and, 
and also there was one th- I, beyond the, the the family stuff that my sister told me about and and just what a, a wonderful caring father and husband he was there i hadn't really appreciated it and I, f- I feel quite bad about this that that he was actually the greatest direct sportif in professional cycling and already at 40 years old can be put in the bastion of the the greatest ever direct sportifs in the sport his humility had meant that not many of us were really aware of that what i mean is it is that the case it's it's interesting because you wouldn't have heard this expressed uh, and unfortunately we're we're expressing it now posthumously so he can't be told and he can't Mm. hear these things but um you would genuinely say that you know his feats on the tour de france in particular winning the race essentially with three different riders and then possibly most memorably orchestrating that audacious mm. stage 18 of the or stage 19 or whatever it was of the Giro two years ago they put him in that category for you do they if the, yeah. the, the greatest have, have been I think there are a few reasons uh, one is the the fact that he transitioned out of uh, being a racer to a DS when he was young 31 32 into one of the world's greatest teams a team that has changed cycling it's modernized it it's brought a level of professionalism that it's never known and he went from being a professional cyclist into one of the most highest stressed, uh, an environment where nothing but excellence is expected and the volume of work and the, the, the multitasking you have to do is, is incomparable to anywhere else in the world of cycling, in sport possibly. And yet he absorbed it all, he sponged it all, he, he became excellent in so many different areas from the actual functional operational management to the personal coaching of riders to the tactical uh, expertise he he displays and, and used to to win some of the biggest bike races in the world and to and to actually being within what often on the outside we will refer to team Ineos as being robotic machine-like hyper rational he was the the keystone in there that, that brought heart and soul to the team sure. he was the person that actually gave it the, 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 the he was the beating heart I think he, he obviously had it's become very obvious now hasn't it he had a very light touch yeah but really with a great deal of method attached because mm. to, to... I mean, you and I did a, that live event in Harrogate um, during the World Championships and one of the kind of biggest laughs that happened on stage was when we talked about Movistar because mm. people just, yeah. you know, and, and we compared them to Ineos and we compared the kind of like the three leadership thing that Ineos seemed to have cracked. And yeah. if you read Froome's account of 2018 and the Tour de France, you read Thomas's account, you read the dynamics of last year's Tour de France where Thomas and Bernard were both in the reckoning these are things that you shouldn't take for granted no. so managing man managing these leaders these alpha riders yeah. to success repeatedly not just once suggests that um he really knew what he was doing he really yeah because that that begins to fall into the realm of um of the the black arts <laughs> yeah. because managing alpha athletes is it's very difficult and that's why normally you only have one alpha dog per team because otherwise it's clashing and it's yet yeah, he was able to manage that and, and allow them to to work symbiotically for the greater cause which was the team and it is it's an art form and i don't know any other ds that manages to do that or has done ever really but it's normally but a playoff. Do it, from what i understand david he didn't do it by banging his fist no. on the breakfast table and saying look this guys this is what we're going to do <laughs> <clears throat> he just let the riders be the riders and kind of took a very much a back seat, but kept an eye, obviously, yeah. very closely on the situation. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's so, and I think that's why he is, and it's been said, and I think they mean it with absolute <clears throat> sincerity. Well, I know they do. He's irreplaceable. 
And yep. that is going to be a huge challenge for Team Ineos because he becomes such, as I said, the beating heart, and he was the he was almost the the, the, the sprinkled the magic dust within that team, yep. and it was able to manage those situations. and And it wasn't just internally. I mean, and you know from interviewing him, and we've seen him how he was able to to be a firewall between Completely. the media yep. and the riders. He'd always be there after the stage, talk to the riders and be out there talking to all the press. In all circumstances. In never all... shunned his responsibilities. In that and he was like an old school uh, coach out of a movie who will literally move a mountain and defend his riders, no matter the cause. And he did it with such, uh, even during the darkest times when Team Sky were getting attacked and booed, etc. in his home country in France, he was able to defend them in a credible manner. Mm. that nobody else could have, I don't think, because mm. it's a it's a tightrope. I mean, I know uh, from being in those situations how you manage that vitriol and and what he was dealing with was hate and being able to turn it and, and actually have people believe in what he was saying. So that's what I mean. There were so many different roles he played all at once and with, as you said, a light touch. And so from the outside, we didn't really perceive, perceive it. We took it for granted. Yep. And I don't think they took it for granted inside. And I think it's going to be one of the most challenging periods in the history of Team Ineos the next few months, uh, overcoming this. Uh, it's, it's, and just emotionally, I know how it's affected my sister and, uh, from, and many others in that team. And I think it's, uh, it's going to be really hard. And I, I really feel for them. And that's just one of the reasons why I, I don't, literally don't have words for, for this one. Because it's just, it's, it's too... It's too horrible. It's just, and I don't want to even imagine it. Team Ineos then one of seven World Tour teams who aren't at Paris-Nice, and the difference being with their enforced layoff for the month of March, that they have uh, also made it public that they are taking time to uh, grieve, essentially, as a as a team, as an organisation for Nico Portal. Paris-Nice continues tomorrow on Monday with Stage 2, David. 166.5 kilometres, pretty flat. Stage 3 is a monster and it heads north to south. And if the wind blows in the Ooh. same direction as it did today, it's going to be one of those horrible yeah. slogs, isn't it? 212 kilometres. Then Stage 4 is the individual time trial, 15k of it. Uh, in and around saint amand Monton with a bit of a gentle climb in the middle of it. Perfectly suited, you suspect, to the local boy, Philippe. After that then, and this is very much the way that Paris-Nice has been framed over the last few years, it gets progressively more and more mountainous. Stage 7 is always the big GC showdown day. And stage 8, <coughs> as they descend, so that, sorry, that's a 16 kilometre to the summit of Valbor-la-Colmen. And then uh, stage 8, the final one, into, uh, sorry, from Nice back out into Nice. That doesn't make sense, but you know what I mean. Um, it'll finish on a descent. And if it's wet, that's always quite sketchy as well. So... Plenty of racing still to come. I'm losing my voice. <coughs> and you've got to go off and do your studio thing with Gary, who's a bit yeah. gruff, isn't he? He's a bit... Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, bit, it's a, little, a little bit concerning. In these days of corona. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, hopefully it'll be all right. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's do it all again tomorrow. See ya.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 